Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Hey friends, today I'm so excited to have Dr. Hart on my podcast today. She joins me to talk about sex and sex medicine. Welcome. She's a family doctor in Canada who specializes in sexual health, and now that's your full-time practice. She's at Foothills Sexual Function Clinic, and you can find her at www.sexualfunctionclinic.com. I'm so excited you're joining me today. It's in it's your inaugural virgin podcast. Yep. I'm a newbie. I'm really excited to be here, though. This is fun. It's so fun. We met, you and I met unofficially on a Facebook group that we share with physicians. And we connected when I posted a picture of the clinician's guide to systemic sex therapy. (laughs) Yeah, there are many people who read those books, I don't think. I was like, to, to me, I'm like, of course I'm supposed to read this book. Like, I need to know this stuff. And I'm like, ooh, somebody else read it. (laughs) We need to meet. (laughs) How did you get into, like, this point in your career? Tell me about your path and, like, how you got to the point where you read that book and started this clinic. Oh, it's kind of an odd one. So I was a full service rural family doc for years, more than a decade. I delivered babies. I worked in the emergency room. I, I had inpatient care. I did all of it. But I ended up with some health problems that made doing that just physically not possible anymore. And so I ended up off work and trying to come up with alternatives that I could do. I mean, I still loved medicine. I loved what I did. I just, I couldn't keep up. So I started looking at alternatives and I'd always known that sexual function was an area that nobody knew much about. I mean, I'd had patients that would come see me as a family doctor that had a variety of different problems with sex, and I had no idea how to help them. And I would send them a referral to a gynecologist or a urologist, and they didn't know either. And really, nobody knew how to help these people. And so for for most of my career, I just assumed that there was no help for that, that it wasn't something we could fix. And then while I was off work and contemplating my options, I stumbled across some ads actually online for some conferences on sexual medicine and was kind of like, that's a thing. I, I totally had no idea that was a thing. And so I started looking into it and I went to a couple of the conferences because I had nothing else to do when I was off work. And it was amazing. And I realized that in a lot of ways, family medicine is the best position to be able to do that because we see both men and women, we see LGBTQ populations, we see young folks and old folks because sexual function problems happen across the spectrum. And there isn't another specialty really that can do the counseling, the medicine, the hormones for all of the population, because every other specialty is limited to a particular part of the population. So it gave me kind of the confidence to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to do that. And then of course, that required some additional training in order to be able to actually answer the questions that came to me. And that's where I came across systemic sex therapy books. That's amazing. So how long have you been doing just full-time sexual medicine now? Uh, Two years. Awesome. Do you love it? I love it. It's amazing. I mean, I have some of the the craziest stories at dinner parties, I'll tell you, but um, I do like, I feel really like it's helping people in a way that really nobody has helped them for years. I see people who've been struggling for three or four decades with particular problems that no one was ever able to, to help with. Amazing. And they're so grateful of patients. I can't, can't only imagine. They're like, oh yeah. my gosh, nobody else 
even wanted to talk about this. If you were to totally like say the most common, what's the most common sex issue between couples? Can you break it down into like the number one issue? Yeah, the number one issue is definitely honestly not a disorder. It's just a mismatch where one person in the couple has a much higher sex drive than the other. And both of them are normal. Neither of them have anything particularly wrong, but a mismatch causes a huge relationship problem because they both have different expectations. Love it. How do you go? How do you start normalizing that for people? Well, normalizing for the start. I mean, talking about how sex drive fits on a bell curve, right? There are people who want to have sex every day or more than that. There are people who will never want to have sex again. And those things aren't necessarily abnormal, but it doesn't mean they're not going to fight about it with their partner. And so where those curves overlap, like on average, male presenting people have a higher level of desire than female presenting people. But that doesn't actually mean that kind of like height, there are tall women and short men, even though the average man is taller, the same goes for sex drive. So for the average man, the sex drive is higher, but there are men with very low sex drives and women with very high sex drives. And that's still normal. And the mismatch still causes problems. It doesn't matter whose drive is higher or lower. So explaining that and the bell curve helps a little And sort of taking the myth of male sexuality out of it, because we have this toxic masculine understanding of sexuality for men, that men always want sex and they're always on and they're always ready no matter what. And that's really harmful for a lot of people. So taking that myth out of it helps a lot. There's a lot of myths there. And so so fighting through those to kind of go, you know, everybody's different and it's okay if you don't fit that societally expected pattern. One of the things I, I've loved, and I'd love your take on it, is breaking down the, the kind of myth that it's the low desires person's job to rise to the higher desires level. Absolutely. Like everything in a relationship, it has to be a negotiation. So you can't expect someone who wants sex once a month to have sex every day. You just can't. But you also can't expect someone who would like to have sex every day to never have sex. So you need to find a middle ground where both people can manage within what's acceptable to them. Yep. I love it. I love the idea of breaking apart of like all of your orgasms have to be with your partner. Right. Oh my goodness. If all of your orgasms are with your partner, you're kind of doing it wrong as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And the the other, the sex myth about orgasms is like, especially I see this more in women is like, I have three for the week and I can't use one by myself because then I'll only have two left for my partner. Like there's this like, like I've got these orgasms that I can use in my pocket. And they're a lim- it's a limited time offer, you know, instead of like, why are you, why are you limiting yourself to like how many you have and where you can use them? <laughs> like, I don't know. Do you see that? Like, well, I, you know, that's going to be, that'd be two for a week. Yeah. I haven't seen a lot of that, although that's really hilarious actually. But what I see a lot of is people who feel guilty that if they have any, even the tiniest bit of sex drive, they should be having sex with their partner because otherwise they won't have the drive on those other days. And so if they do use that drive on their own, then there's none left. So it isn't even about the orgasms. It's about the willingness or or the desire to have sex. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about anorgasmia. So that's a medical term. What's, uh, What's anorgasmia? So 
So anorgasmia looks like a lot of different things for a lot of different people. The commonest definition is inability to have an orgasm. But for a lot of people, it isn't necessarily complete inability. It's that it takes a really long time. Or when they do orgasm, it's not as strong as it used to be. It's kind of dull or or muted. It's not as intense. Or it doesn't happen as often. It used to happen 75% of the time that they had sex, and now it's only happening 25% of the time when they had sex. So it's basically anything that changes or decreases orgasm, whether it's intensity or frequency. And do you work on different options, bring in vibrators or toys? Do you talk about hormones? Kind of how do you work for the person who's like, I know how to do it. It's just not what it used to be. Yeah. So it really depends. If they cannot orgasm at all, that's a very different treatment than if they have orgasms, but the intensity's changed. Oftentimes when the intensity's changed, there's something that's precipitated that. So it might be menopause, it might be stress, it might be a change in the relationship, it might be a new partner who isn't actually as you know, just as good in bed, honestly, or isn't willing to experiment with the things that might work. And so a change in orgasm is a much different thing. If they've never had an orgasm, that's a very different problem. Never had an orgasm is often related to a combination of anxiety because there's so much pressure and so much expectation and they think it must look or feel a certain way. They've seen movies, they've seen pornography where it looks a certain way. People are screaming and, you know, having seizures and they have these expectations of what it's supposed to look like and they can't meet those expectations and they get so stuck in their head that they just can't even relax enough to have an orgasm. So it can be that. And then it can also just be not knowing what works, not having had enough time or enough permission or enough confidence to experiment. But the ones who have decreased orgasm, they used to orgasm fine and now they have a problem. The key is figuring out what changed. Was it menopause? If it was, then that's something we talk about hormones. We talk about ways of increasing circulation. Is it a cardiac problem? I mean, we know heart problems for men cause erectile dysfunction. Heart problems for women cause arousal problems. So are we missing something there? You know, do they have a circulation issue? Have they damaged the nerves? I see that in horseback riders and and bike riders where there's so much constant pressure on the nerves in their general region that they're numb now. Have they used a vibrator so much that they've actually numbed things out a little bit? So finding that trigger is where we have to start and then figure out how to reverse whatever that trigger caused. Perfect. That is very helpful. Let's go to myths for either non-straight couples or non-gender conforming individuals. What are some myths that come up in in those individuals? Oh gosh, there's so many. You know, I see a lot of interesting things with that. And there's myths that straight people have about not straight people. And there's myths that not straight people have about not straight people. One of the commonest ones that I hear talk about is something, it's a term that was coined, I don't know, 30 or 40 years ago called lesbian bed death. And the assumption was that because on average, women have lower levels of sex drive, if you put two women in a relationship together, eventually there won't be any sex drive for either of them and they will become completely asexual. So there was this sort of picture in people's heads of these spinster women who were in their 50s or 60s or 70s who were essentially sisters or roommates because they no longer had sex with each other because women stopped having sex drive. 
And obviously that's completely ridiculous. Women don't just spontaneously stop having sex drive because they hit a certain age or, or whatever, or stage of relationship. That's not how it works. And in fact, studies show that lesbian couples have a more satisfying sex life than women in heterosexual couples on average. So the myth really doesn't stand up to reality, but it's still talked about even in medical literature all the time. No way. I didn't know it was still in the medical literature. It is. It's actually something I was taught in medical school. We had probably an hour on sexual function in all of medical school. And we covered everything from homosexuality to fetishes to necrophilia to whatever in like 45 minutes. And lesbian bed death was talked about that in that 45 minutes. Like it was like it was just a known fact. Interesting. Yeah, I, I like the point that you bring up because the data does support when you look at orgasmic inequality that the homosexual couples, both men and women, have a higher rate of orgasm equality between the partners than the heterosexual couple does. And it's the heterosexual female that's having the least amount of orgasms in her sexual activity. Absolutely. Yeah. And I see that a lot. I can't tell you how many women in my practice have an orgasm just fine if they're alone, but their partner has never given them an orgasm. And a lot of them, it's because the partner never tried. And then there are those who tried and just couldn't get it figured out. But it's men never come in saying, my partner can't give me an orgasm. I I haven't seen one. Fascinating. Yeah, I think there's so many, so much education just in that little thing of like, first of all, women thinking that there's something wrong with them if they can orgasm by themselves and not with a penis in the vagina, right? And totally normalizing that and be like, no, that's actually like the majority. We can work with we can work with it, but it's not a shameful, broken thing. It is. It's 70% in studies of women who cannot orgasm from penetration alone. Yep, And that makes sense. If you think about the anatomy, I mean, the part that most people have an orgasm with is clitoral stimulation. And if you're having penetrative sex, the penis isn't anywhere near the clitoris. Yep. I love it. And I think the other thing that's really interesting about that scenario is that women often give the power of their orgasms to their male partner, or they assume that the male partner knows what they're doing, right? Like, why are we assuming that one half of the population actually got good sex education if the other one didn't, right? Nobody got good sex education. For sure. Nobody got good sex education. And we continue to not give kids good sex education. But on top of that, the sort of the culture of there must be something wrong with you if you don't have an orgasm has also led to a culture of women who fake it. Yes. And what that leads to is men who think they're good in bed and what they are is have had a string of partners who faked it. Yeah. And what faking it does. So my understanding, women are faking it because they want to, they don't want to hurt their man's ego or they just want it to end. They're kind of, it's like a well-intentioned sort of scenario but they're setting up this, my body is not having pleasure. It's being touched in the genitals, but it's not having pleasure. And you're kind of dissociating that part of the body with enjoyment by performing things that actually aren't enjoyable for you. Absolutely. And there's a lot of shame and guilt and expectations around that, that, you know, but I should be having an orgasm when it's like that. So I'll just, you know, fake it till I make it. Yeah. But then that also doesn't teach them what actually does work. And it doesn't teach their partner what actually does work. So the partner goes home thinking they're a total stud. Their partner had these screaming orgasms and really it was just theater. Yeah, I know. And it's super common. Yeah. And to talk about like why it's actually happening and then how to get yourself out of that knot. Dr. Steven Snyder, he's a he's a psychiatrist in New York City. He wrote a book. He calls them love knots. Couples tangle themselves up in love knots. 
<laughs> and that would be one you have to, you have to untangle yourself from fake orgasms. Well, and that's a really tough one to untangle because if you've been with this same partner for a year or a decade and you've been faking orgasm the whole time, how do you then turn around and say, actually, you were never good in bed and we need to change this? Right. That's yeah. a really hard conversation to have. Super hard. And, and I think, you know, turning it around and actually owning some responsibility for your role in faking it. Yes. Right. Because I think a lot of women are like, you didn't give me an orgasm. And it's like, well, you have a you have a complete role in the, the part that you've been doing. Absolutely. Did you ever try teaching your partner to give you an orgasm? If you've never told him what you wanted, how did you expect he would know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I love so much about all of this stuff is really empowering women to take their power back. Right. Absolutely. And that's, that's one of the things I love about the most is like, you know, what gives you an orgasm. Don't assume anybody else knows. And don't assume that the male part of our population got that education because we didn't. Why would they? Or their education came from porn. Right. Which is more theater. It is. It's absolutely unrealistic. It's, you know, you watch a porn movie and within 30 seconds of penetration, they're screaming and their legs are flailing. And that's just not what sex looks like for real couples. Totally. So what would you say, what's a common myth that men have about women's sexual function? Oh gosh. Oh, pick one. Cause there's so many. <laughs> we're like, they were going to save this for just an entire podcast because it's going to take that long. <laughs> yeah, really? Right. It's bad. I would say the most harmful one that I see is men assuming that since women don't have to be erect, they don't have erectile function issues. They don't, you know, they can have sex, even if they're completely unaroused and completely uninterested in sex, that they should do that. So even I see couples all the time and he says, well, what's the big deal? Can't you just lay there and let me do this? You don't have to want to, you just have to lay there. It's only five minutes of your life. What's the difference? What's the big deal? Oh, my heart. Right. And I, I see this, I'm going to say a third of the couples where the female partner has low sex drive. Right. It's exceedingly common and it's really toxic. Super toxic. Oh my gosh. I mean, just the thought of somebody doing something to you that you don't want done. And then you wonder where your desire is, right? And yeah. you're, you're using your pelvis for something that's not pleasurable. You don't even want it. And then you wonder why you can't experience pleasure down there. I mean, it's, it's turned your relationship into sexual abuse. Yeah. And we're supposed to somehow have desire for our abuser? Yeah, that seems unlikely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it goes back to just men not having any sexual education either. Totally. Right. So what do you do? So you're, you see that scenario in your clinic. Where do you start? Oh, that's a tough one. It depends a little bit on how receptive that person is to re-education. I mean, there, there are some who are literally asking because they just don't get it. And that's usually educatable. And I'll often give them examples of things like, so do you have any friends who are gay? And, you know, they'll say, yeah, well, you know, somebody I work with or whatever. I'll say, so if he wanted to have sex with you, I mean, it doesn't take you anything to take off your pants and just lay there and let him have sex, anal sex with you. Costs you nothing. You don't have to do anything. You just have to lay there. It's only five minutes. Would that be okay? Can he just have sex with you and, and you'll just take it for five minutes? Well, no, I would never do that. Yeah, well, that's how your wife feels about it too, right? That's beautiful. That's re that reframing really helps. But there are 
some who literally are not willing to consider any other options. Like they are not willing to consider that what they are doing is a problem. They're so steeped in that, you know, misogyny and toxic masculinity that it doesn't matter what I say and it's not going to change. And I, I have seen several of those. And unfortunately, oftentimes those relationships are also abusive in other ways. And there's just, there's no amount of sex therapy. There's no amount of medicine that's going to change that. Yeah. It's, that's powerful stuff though. Even just bringing, even just putting light on that, you know, cause I think a lot of people don't even, well, why would that be a problem until you explain yeah. it in a way that makes very perfect sense? Yeah. I think another a myth that men have about women is that we, we think about sex. We have, we, that we're just like small men. <laughs> yep. And me, yep. men's brains are, they're a lot more visual. They're a lot more light switchy right? Whereas women's brains are a lot more like context dependent. Women stereotypically, again, stereotyping, need a little bit more variety in order to have pleasure. So it's kind of, we're not just small men in how we think or want to have sex. Absolutely. And it, it's funny. So I tell people all the time that there are two kinds of people when it comes to sex. And on average, that line is drawn on gender lines, but it isn't always. There are definitely women who fall on the other side and, and men who fall on the, the female side. And if you think about the concept of intimacy as like a currency, like you get a coin and everybody has a piggy bank where they store it. So there are people who fill their piggy bank having sex. Having sex is like the best thing ever. They feel so energized afterwards. They love their partner more. They have more self-confidence. They just feel better after. Their piggy bank is full by the time they're done having sex. The other kind of people aren't like that. They need a full piggy bank first in order to have sex. And it costs them something. That piggy bank gets emptied out when they have sex. And it doesn't mean the sex is bad. It doesn't mean they're doing it wrong. It's just the way we look at it. And so if you don't realize that you're that one type of person and your partner is the other type of person, the misunderstandings are enormous. So the lower sex drive partner can't understand why the higher sex drive partner can't just not. Like, why can't you just ignore it, right? Just don't think about it. It'll go away. But it doesn't because they're the kind of person whose piggy bank is constantly empty unless they're actually having sex. And then the higher sex drive partner can't understand that the low sex drive partner just doesn't have enough in their bank to make it possible right now. And they keep doing things that empty out the bank, like pressuring someone to have sex or like grabbing their butt when they walk by as they're emptying the dishwasher. They think they're being funny, but instead all they're doing is emptying out that person's piggy bank and it never gets full enough for them to decide to have sex. Totally. I see this a lot in women, busy women, moms, they're giving all day long, right? They're giving to their job, they're giving to their kids, they're giving to their spouse, but they're giving to their community. And then they're viewing sex as giving, especially if they're not receiving satisfaction, if it's not about the woman, if she's not having pleasure and orgasm, then it's even more, it's just another task. And yeah. then she comes in thinking her, she's broken because she doesn't have desire. You know, and I think that kind of ties into the piggy bank of like, if all you're doing is giving and sex to use, just giving some more, it's just another thing that is draining your piggy bank. Yeah. And instead of re and what I tend to do is kind of focus on sex needs to be about you for you with your partner. Cause if it's something you're just doing again, it's not going to work. Absolutely. It is tough though. I think one of the most helpful things is teaching these women and their partners how to fill their piggy bank. 
in other ways. And, and it comes down to the sort of the concept of love languages, which I don't know how scientific that is, but it, it definitely seems to help. If you're that person who feels appreciated when someone does things for you, then that's what's going to be what fills your piggy bank. And so someone taking those tasks off your hand, doing the laundry without being asked, that fills your piggy bank. But maybe you're the kind of person who needs to be told how appreciated you are. You know, you need someone to say, I noticed that you did all the laundry and I'm thankful. I love how much you do for our family and I'm thankful. That's what fills their piggy bank is being appreciated. Some people, it's literally gifts. Like, give me things and I will feel good. And that's okay. We shouldn't be ashamed about that. It's a love language. Teaching the partner and the person to figure out what works for them to fill their piggy bank so that they're more likely to have enough in there to make it worth it. 100%. I read the love language thing and it just totally clicked. And I was thinking, you know, thinking of it in the whole sex medicine thing is like the way partners ask for sex from each other. If you're asking for sex in a love language that the other person, that's not their love language, it might not come across the right way. Right. Absolutely. And so learning the the asking, how the asking is, some people are just very fact-based, like how 7 p.m. tonight, you want to have sex? And like, that might not work for other people. And so learning how, what the love language of getting a partner in the mood and approaching it in a way that doesn't feel like emptying the piggy bank. Absolutely. A lot of men on average, their love language is physical touch. Now, again, this is stereotypes. Not everybody's like that, but a lot of men, it's physical touch and they don't realize that that's not the same for their partner. And so they'll do things like literally walk up behind them while they're cooking dinner and grope them. And they think that that's initiating sex in a really sexy, cute, funny way when the partner's just trying to get through dinner, right? And having a discussion about it would have gone over much better than just groping you, right? Because just groping you, you feel like you're actually being assaulted while you're just trying to get the, you know, the, the dinner ready. Right. You're having to multitask <laughs> with, with fire on a stove. <laughs> and people don't talk about sex. So instead of saying, hey, you know, if you want to have sex, why don't you just tell me? they just push the partner away. And then the Mm -hmm. partner feels rejected, feels insulted. They tried to initiate sex and got told no. Whereas, you know, their female partner didn't even realize that was initiating sex. They were just annoyed that someone grabs their butt. hundred percent. Yeah. I love it. I love the love languages and sex and how it works. What I see a lot happening is so a woman doesn't want to have sex. And so she'll start not having any touch with her partner. Because she's associating any touch with this is going to lead to sex. And then what you have over time is you have two partners that don't touch at all. And then the man's like, what happened to the hugs? What happened to the sitting on the, you know, and he's really just missing the touch, especially if that's his love language. Right. Absolutely. And and the woman is kind of tying any touch into it's going to have to result in me having sex and really realizing the power of staying in touch and not always having it have to lead to sex. And that requires a conversation that most people just feel so awkward about having. Like, it's okay to say, hey, I just want to cuddle today. Can we just cuddle? Please don't touch my butt. But women are afraid to ask for that. And men don't even know that that's what women are looking for. And so the conversation never happens. Totally. Let's talk about the conversation. So any tips for couples if they're like, they know they're living a life that they don't want to keep going. They want to change something. How do you start talking about sex with your partner? Oh gosh, you know, that's really tough. And I don't know that anybody I know has figured out really effectively. I think that being open to having help for that conversation is a really good part of it because 
these are awkward conversations that we don't train people to have. We don't teach them to talk about sex. Half the time, they don't even have the language for it. They don't even know what they're asking for, never mind, you know, what, what they're looking for. And so being open to having a relationship therapist or a sex therapist as part of that conversation is important. But so many people see therapy with this stigma of mental illness that they can't see that actually it's useful for everybody. So being able to be open to that is, is helpful, but honestly, just sort of stealing yourself for the awkwardness and bullying through it is really about as good as it gets. Like, so here's this conversation. It's going to be super awkward. You're going to hate me by the end. I'll probably hate you by the end, but we still need to have this conversation. I love it. I've really gotten into coaching because of my interest in sex and communication and just because so much of it is mind work, right? And the coaching, you know, their theory on it is the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to feel an uncomfortable feeling. You're not going to die. It's just going to be uncomfortable. And then that will go away. But when you like break it down, like the worst thing that could happen is it's going to be uncomfortable and you're going to have to feel that. Okay, well, all right. It's probably going to be worth it. You know, and knowing that one conversation is not one and done. It's the start of a new way of communicating. Absolutely which I really love. So let's go into myths that women have about men's sexual function. I think the biggest one that I run into is that, is that toxic masculinity myth that men are always on. They always want sex. They're constantly ready for it. They think about it a hundred times a day. And then when something doesn't fall into that pattern, they honestly believe it's pathology. I get a lot of women who come see me themselves convinced that there's something wrong with them because their husband doesn't want to have sex with them all the time, like all the time. And they're really, they don't want to have sex all the time either. That's not what it is. It's that they're bothered by the fact that their husband isn't interested seven days a week. And I get it. I see that a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot. And it's, it's crazy. Like no one is on all the time. No one is even the most, you know, prolific pornography actor is not on all the time. Um, and so understanding that stress, that physical health, that mental health, that lack of sleep, that fatigue, those things impact men just as much as they do women. And it's not reasonable to always expect men to have a really high sex drive. So I think that one is, is really huge. And then the other one is that erectile dysfunction has nothing to do with arousal. So just because your partner has erectile dysfunction doesn't mean he isn't attracted to you. It's literally a circulation problem. It has nothing to do with you. Perfect. I love that. I think the, my most listened to podcast episode is called Your Partner Is Not Broken. Because I think there's so much interest for women to understand men and the way that men think and realizing that, you know, what we think a man's behavior means might not be what it actually means. So totally. I think it's such an important conversation. Another thing I see a lot in this that you brought up is women in our society, we've been trained that we are worthy because we are desired. We are the object yes. of desire. And when we think that our partner isn't desiring us, we think that's a big problem with us. Right. Mm -hmm. And kind of breaking that societal thing down. So the men, stereotypically, again, men are the person that does the desiring. Women are the people who are the object of desire. And when there's some sort of dysfunction in there or worry or like, oh, my gosh, he can't get an erection. It's because I'm not desirous enough. It, it can go downhill really quick. 
It does. And it, it does go downhill really quick and it leads to divorce really quick in the wrong situation for sure. Or yeah. people who live as roommates and never talk about it and are just unhappy for the rest of their married lives. Yeah, absolutely. Can you make up or can you like give us a scenario of like a totally awesome win that you had, but with a couple, like they came in, it was not good and now it's great. Can you give us a, some, a happy story about that? Uh, lots, really. So let's pick one. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So I had an older couple. They were in their 60s. It was a new relationship. So both of them had been married previously and divorced in their 50s. And they really liked each other, but were really struggling to connect sexually. Both of them desired sex. Both of them had normal sexual function. He wasn't having problems with erectile dysfunction. She wasn't having, you know, her menopause was treated. She wasn't having problems with that. But they just, they were just really struggling to connect. And I don't even know how the topic came up, but I interviewed each of them individually. And one of the things I asked was, what things would you want to be doing like sexually with your partner that you're afraid to tell them? And it turned out that actually both of them had a strong interest in kink that they had never explored before in their unhappy previous marriages. And they were too embarrassed to tell each other about because they were afraid that the other person wouldn't be interested in the same thing. And they were afraid that they'd be seen as, as, you know, gross or perverted or something along those lines. They were afraid of being judged. And so they never told the other person. And so I actually, I mean, it was the easiest visit ever. I had them sit down. There's a couple of different websites that you can actually put in your desires about different levels of kink. And it had, they have like questions. Are you interested in tying up your partner? Yes or no. Are you interested in being tied up by your partner? Yes or no. And they go through all of these different things. And then they only tell you the areas where you match. And so it won't out you. If you have a kink that your partner thinks is gross, it's not going to tell your partner about that. It's only going to tell you the areas you match. So I literally had them sit down and do it in the office. They both pulled out their phones and they did this thing and we matched. And it turned out they had all the same interests. They were totally both on the same page. They came back a month later to invite me to the kink festival they were going to. <laughs> and that's the last time I saw them. Because then COVID, so the kink festival didn't happen. But, um, You're a superhero dressed up as a, <laughs> well, as a doctor. And it was, it, it, all they needed was a conversation, Oh my but gosh. they were too embarrassed to have the conversation. You just changed their whole freaking life. Well, it was great. And I, I mean, I hope they're still very happy and tying each other up all over the place. <laughs> they probably are. <laughs> That's fantastic. Dude, do, do you remember the name of the website so that people can look at this? Yeah, it's um, Mojo Upgrade. Nice. Yeah. Mojo upgrade. Check it out, people. You never know what you're going to find. That's so cool. Totally. So what if you say, so let's talk about a, a heterosexual couple and a man has a, a female partner who has low desire. How can he help? Honestly, the biggest answer to that is ask her what she needs. So a lot of guys will assume that they should not initiate sex. Oh, maybe I'm putting too much pressure on her. So they stop initiating altogether and then she's left feeling undesired. Yep, going In back addition to, that, to having right? a low sex drive, right? It makes it worse. Or they'll try to pressure her more, thinking all she needs is more encouragement. And then she's left with feeling pressured constantly, which is not a good way to feel desire. Having expectations laid on you, turns out, doesn't work out all that well. So ask. 
right? Ask them, what do you need? What can I do to help you? And if they don't know the answer, find a sex therapist who can help them explore what those are. There are some good books on the subject, and I'm sure you've talked about them before because they're really popular. There's one called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, which really breaks down female desire very well. Why do we have it? What does it do? How do we maximize it? What things are we using that put our foot on the brakes? What things can we do to put our foot on the gas? But it's the conversation that's the most important. Ask what they need instead of assuming that what you do changes things. Yep. I love it. And I think, you know, go, again, go, I love your, I love your piggy bank analogy. I'm stealing it and using it forever. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, is that a lot of men have sex for stress relief. Yeah. A lot of women need their stress relieved before they can have sex. Absolutely. And that whole, like, what do you need? Do I need to put the kids to bed so you can go have an hour of downtime? So your head's still not in this, you know, sympathetic activation of taking care of everybody. So then we Absolutely. can meet in the same place. Yep. Do you need more sleep? Do you need more romance? Do you need more time to yourself? Do you like what, you know, do you need me to empty the dishwasher? What is it you need me to do? Yeah. Yeah. There's actually that study and it goes back to Emily Nagoski's book, but there's a study that men who do dishes have more sex. And the reason for that, number one, equality in the home is very, very big, right? If the woman doesn't have the lion's share of all the work in the home, that's going to lead to more sex because she's more free for sex and less stress and less resentful. Yes, absolutely. So I think there's a lot to doing the dishes, especially if that's your love language. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we we joke about it all the time, but chore play is a thing. I love that. Okay, now I'm stealing two things. Oh my gosh, this is fantastic. Um, Let's talk about menopause and sex. What are some myths or special considerations with menopause, perimenopause and sex? Well, I think the myth is that women stop wanting sex or having sex once they hit menopause, that, that it's just, it's like a hard line. The minute their period stops, they no longer want or have sex. And I don't know who that myth is more prominent for, but I see a lot of fear around that from women themselves thinking my sex life is over because I'm 51 and my period's irregular or from men who are, you know, whose wives are approaching menopause or are menopausal and have low desire and thinking, well, that's it. Never having sex again. I mean, it's just simply not true. And so if they're running into problems, they need to get help. But the special considerations, I mean, the biggest one, honestly, is that after menopause with low estrogen, we get changes to the vagina. It gets drier, it gets less elastic, the skin gets thinner and it tears more easily. So without help, without treatment, sex becomes painful for most women after menopause. And that's just to be expected and we can fix it. So if that person at menopause sees their doctor, they can fix that. There are treatments available and it doesn't matter what risk factors you have. It doesn't matter if you've had breast cancer, there are treatments available that can fix that. But you have to ask because again, doctors are just as embarrassed talking about sex as patients are. And so doctors don't often ask. They won't come and say, hey, are you having pain with sex? But you will have pain with sex after menopause. You will, and you need to treat it. Yeah. I love how you normalize that. It's so common. And I, I need to move the needle on this because I see so many women there in their late sixties. I'd ask them about sex life. Cause I, I work in the pelvis, right? So it's just a question down there. And they say, no, I stopped 15 years ago because it was painful. And I'm like, I got to move the needle on this. This is, you know, 15 years after you stopped having sex because it was painful to me is it's not too late. There's still, you can still do things, but it's like, we got to get to these women faster. Yes. And what we need is education for women in their 20s and 30s and 40s saying you can have sex forever 
And if you run into a problem that makes it so you can't get help. I love it. I love it. And the the other thing, I I see people in their 80s, they're having wonderful, happy sex, the best sex of their lives, but they've had to work for it. You have to communicate. You have to figure out, you know, what you did then doesn't work now. You have to use lubrication, usually vaginal estrogen, sometimes a Viagra sort of thing for the man. So they have great sex. It's our, I think it's our stereotype in society that old people don't, which, which hurts us. We're going to, God bless us. We're going to live till we're old. Well, here's hoping, right? Here's hoping. The the thing about it, and it kind of makes sense because nobody wants to think about their grandma having sex. And if you think about old people having sex, the natural extension to that is thinking about grandma having sex. And nobody wants to think about that. We all want to poke out our own eyes when we think about that. Exactly. But we did all get here because of grandma having sex. Well, exactly, right? And <laughs> hopefully they are having sex. And hopefully when you get to be grandma's age, you will too. And so we need to we need to facilitate that. Some of that is is... I mean, you talk about they have to work for it. If you've got replaced knees and replaced hips, you're going to have to think a little differently about how sex is going to work. If you've had prostate surgery, you're going to have to think a little differently about what sex looks like for you. And we have technology that can make all of those things work if you know to look for it. Totally. Yep. I love it. What's your opinion on scheduling sex? You know, I think it's really helpful for some people in the right situation. So the problem with having a mismatch between partners, because it's not usually anybody who has a significant disorder. It's a mismatch. One partner has a slightly higher sex drive. One partner has a lower sex drive. The lower sex drive partner lives in constant fear that their partner is going to initiate sex. They don't want sex and they're constantly afraid that they're going to have to say no because that's what they really don't want. Even more than they don't want sex is they don't want to say no all the time. They feel incredibly guilty for saying no. And so they're literally living their lives surrounded by guilt and fear around their partner initiating sex. And it means they never relax. They never go for a hug or a cuddle because they're afraid that'll turn into sex. They don't bring up the concept because they're afraid it'll turn into sex. They don't treat their menopause because then they can say they have pain and they have an excuse not to have sex. Like it's, it's really, it's, it's a major problem, but if you schedule it, so first of all, deal with obviously the pain problems and all that kind of stuff. But if you actually schedule it, then If you know the sex day is Saturday, on an average Tuesday, there's nothing stopping you from cuddling. You don't have to worry about saying no because there's zero expectations. You then can prepare for that day. You kind of like dating as a teenager. I mean, if you think about it, we've scheduled sex our whole lives. As a teenager, what did you do? You said, do you want to go out on Friday? Yeah, okay. And then you had a shower and you got dressed and you put on your makeup and you did your hair. What were you doing? You were scheduling sex. That's what you did, right? Oh my God, that's mind blowing. And we have, I, I mean, then, then you get married and now you're trying to have kids and it's like, okay, well, guess what? Day 14 of my cycle, we need to have sex today, right? We have scheduled sex our whole lives. And then suddenly at age 40, we think it should be spontaneous. It, it's not, it doesn't work that way. And so if you know when you're going to have sex, first of all, that catastrophizing that, oh my God, I'm never going to have sex again. That goes away because you know, you're going to have sex Saturday. So on Tuesday, you don't have that pressure. You don't have that worry about never having sex again. And for the lower sex drive partner, you know today they're not going to initiate. You have a day where you don't have to worry about it. So that together just takes a lot of pressure and expectations off. And then you can prepare for and make the date night special. 
do something romantic, spend quality time, cuddle, kiss, touch, get ready for it, buy some new lingerie, whatever it takes to get you feeling more in the mood and have your partner do that. Have them send you, you know, a message, text message every day telling you how much they're looking forward to date night, right? Get in the mood and do something special to get you there. And then when you do, it's fun and enjoyable and special instead of one more chore. Oh, I love it. When you, when you make a protected window for sex too, that's the only thing you're, that you need to do right then. You don't have to think yeah. about tomorrow. You don't have to think about yesterday. And you, just that focus on the mindfulness and being there and being present, all things that orgasms really love, right? Because yeah. that's the block for when that happens. Because I think so many women, their heads are planning, right? They're in the future, they're in the past. And orgasms don't live in the future, in the past. No, they're also trying to rush because yeah. they're, they're doing it before the kids wake up or they're doing it before they need to go to sleep because they have to be up early tomorrow morning or, you know, whatever it is, they're rushing it. And if you actually put aside a block, there's no rush. You have two hours, right? Or, or however long you've assigned for that, you have time. There's no rush because orgasms don't hurry. Yep. I love it. I love it. Our last question of the day, what are your tips or must do list for women with a low libido? So the first thing is read Come As You Are. Everybody needs to read that book. But a lot of it, again, is, is that communication. Talk to your partner and tell them what things are putting your foot on the brake. If you have too much work on your plate, pass some of it over to your partner. If they want sex, they got to help out. It's, you know, it's, it's just tit for tat, I guess, um, <laughs> a little bit. But, but the communication, right? Ask for what you need, whether that's more help at home, whether that's more time to yourself, whether that's better orgasms, whether that's including a vibrator in the bedroom, ask for what you need and make it their responsibility to help you find it. I love it. That's what I love most about all this is we're taking kind of a passive woman who thinks it's just the hand she was dealt and we're turning into somebody who realizes she has all the power. Absolutely. And that, that is like the coolest thing about all of this. Totally. I love it. Oh my gosh, Dr. Hart, this has been such an incredible pleasure. People, I, this is like, I cannot wait. I cannot wait for people to hear this and to meet you. Can you tell us where they can find you again? Yeah. So my website is sexualfunctionclinic.com. And if you happen to live in Alberta, Canada, and you want to come see me, talk to your doctor. Awesome. Love it. Thank you so much. We've got to do this again in the future, if you'd be willing. Anytime. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.